great to be back with you after a short little mini staycation down in Chicago with my wife last weekend, which is my excuse for not being in church, okay? But I loved having that time with Heather because I can't remember the last time the two of us just got to get away. So it was awesome to do that. And thank you for welcoming Pastor Mark to start our series last week. You know, one of the best things about being on video at Trinity South Naperville is that if you miss a service, you can always jump on Facebook and watch the whole service from beginning to end. You guys realize we're doing that now, right? Which is awesome because we love to encourage our people to be in church face to face every week. And there's no substitute for that techno technologically or otherwise, right? But if you're traveling or if you're ill, like this morning, our youngest, Caleb, is homesick and Heather's there with him today. So she and I will get to watch our service later on so that she can kind of keep up with what's going on here in the spirit. But we love being able to do that. So good morning to our audience online and good morning to you guys. As we get into the second week of our series called A Reconciler's Journey, are you starting to get the heebie-jeebies yet? That's my question for you. Because we're getting into this series and talking about reconciling. And when we reconcile with other people, it literally means that there's coming some kind of a, of a, a confrontation where if we reconcile with somebody with whom we've entered into conflict, there is an assumption that we're going to confront them or we're going to have some kind of conversation maybe that leads to closure. Have you ever been in a conflict with someone before where it wasn't um, closed off or, or uh, ended or reconciled and just simply left open? Have you had that experience in a relationship before? I have. And I know when maybe like you, when I've had the experience of being able to choose to get back together with somebody with whom I've had a conflict and resolve that conflict in the Lord, there's a peace that comes with that. Would you agree with that? So what we're going to talk about today is the nitty gritty of getting down in the dirt of reconciliation. And V mentioned earlier, we're going to be talking about repentance. Repentance in church can sound like a dirty word, like, oh no, I've got to change myself in order you know, to do this thing and repent. Repent simply means to leave this direction and to move in this direction instead. So what we're going to study in the life of Jacob and Esau is the idea of moving from a direction that is causing discordance and causing harm and causing relationships to break to a direction that causes life and peace. In other words, God's plan. So I'd ask you to do this. Just Work with me through these chapters that we find the story of Jacob and Esau. And if you're looking in your Bible today, or if you're looking at your phone and you version, turn to Genesis 25, 26, and 27. And I'm not going to actually read the scripture for you today. I'm just going to kind of summarize the parts of the story that really do lend themselves to the subject of reconciling and particularly to repentance. So the story of Jacob and Esau is a really cool one. Because these guys are typical twins who came out of the womb fighting. The Bible says that they were wrestling and toggling with each other even in the womb. And they came out of the womb fighting. Pastor Mark introduced us to the story last week where he talked about how the firstborn, whose name was what? Esau, came out of the womb first, but then the second one was grabbing at his heel as if to say, no, I want to be the firstborn. I want to go out first. I want to be first. Think about kids you know and kids who argue a lot 
sometimes like they do in our own household. I want to go first, me first, me first. And this is what these brothers struggle with their whole lives. So we're getting into the story today about after that birth happens and after they grow up and after they start to become men, we see these two twins, these Jacob and Esau, developing very different personalities. And in fact, what the Bible says is Esau was more of a huntsman. He liked to be outside. He didn't want to be inside around the tents doing things like cooking, cleaning, and washing. But Jacob liked that stuff. And so the Bible even says that the twin's father, Isaac, preferred to eat the game, that wild meat that Esau would go out and hunt and bring home. So the Bible says that Isaac favored the firstborn son, Esau, and he didn't like Jacob as much because Jacob liked to hang out around the tents and take care of the cooking, washing, cleaning, and things like that. And so his mother, uh, Rebecca, favored Jacob. So there was a little bit of a, a discordance already in the family. There's a little bit of of strife between their likes and dislikes. But what the Bible says is that one day Esau was out hunting and he was trying to get some game uh, to bring home, you know, to eat. He was a huntsman and loved to be outside. And he got really, really hungry and decided to come home and take a break and get some lunch. Lo and behold, his brother Jacob was there cooking lentil stew. Now, have you ever had lentil stew before? It's pretty good depending on how you make it, right? But what Esau does with that lentil stew is shocking. In fact, if you look with me in Genesis 25, the Bible says that once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He was really, really hungry. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Uh, this is why he was also called Edom. Edom means red. Now, when Esau was born, this is an interesting note, when Esau was born, the Bible says he was also very hairy and red. Have you ever seen a really hairy baby? When hairy babies come out and they're all covered in hair? Most of them are not, right? Most of them are, you know, buck naked and completely free of hair. So Esau was not one of those. Esau came out, the Bible says he was red and covered with hair. And then he also came and was attracted to this red lentil stew and said, let me have some, I am famished. Jacob replies, first sell me your birthright. Now, the reason we're making such a big deal about who came out of the womb first is that back in that culture, the firstborn son had legal rights to the estate of the family when the father dies. And we read in the Bible, if you look a little bit earlier in those passages and follow along the life of Isaac, Isaac not only inherited the wealth of his father Abraham, who had died by this time, but Isaac was also very successful in business and grew a huge estate. He was quite wealthy. And so his firstborn son Esau was supposed to get what the scripture described as a double portion of the estate. Now let's do a little math together this morning. I know on Sunday morning it's kind of a trick to do math, right? But if you have two children in an estate and one of them gets a double portion, how do you figure that math out? Well, basically what they did is they divide the estate into three portions and the firstborn son got how many portions? Two of them. So if you do the math in this case, how much wealth was Esau supposed to get compared to Jacob? Twice. He was supposed to get twice as much and not only the twice as much of wealth, you know, cattle and goods and all this and money and all this stuff, but also he was supposed to be the head of the family 
which came with legal responsibilities. This is all that Esau looked forward to. So when Jacob, the younger brother, saw his brother Esau in need, instead of simply just giving him a bowl of red lentil stew, he put some conditions on that service, didn't he? And he said, okay, I'll be glad to serve you and give you some of this stew that I've been slaving over a hot stove with for hours if you will sell me your birthright. Now think about now that you know what that means, think about what Jacob is asking Esau to do. He's asking him to trade his double portion for what? The single portion and be subservient to who? To Jacob, the second-born son. Now, does Esau take this seriously? We don't really know. We're not entirely sure. Let's get into what exactly happened. The first thing that happened was Jacob put conditions on serving his brother. He made it so that it had baggage. It came with a cost. So Esau, if, if I'm going to serve you, if I'm going to do anything nice for you, I'm going to put conditions on this. Now let me ask you a question. And I'm going to ask myself the question too, as if I've got a mirror in front of my face. Are you ever tempted to serve someone you love and call family or friend and put conditions on that service? Do you ever find yourself putting some kind of limits or some kind of baggage on that service so that when you serve that person, you're expecting something in return? Do you ever do that? Sometimes I do. Do you ever think about the way you deal with the people you love giving a casual disregard to God's plan where God says to you, love one another as I have loved you without conditions, without uh, baggage that comes with it? Are you ever tempted to turn away from God's plan and instead of loving selflessly or sacrificially, you love with conditions attached? This is what happened with Jacob and Esau. Are you ever tempted in that moment, instead of thinking about God's plan, working love through you to other people, working love through you to other people, are you ever tempted in that moment impulsively to do something different and to put some kind of constraint on that love? Are you ever tempted to do that? If you say yes, then you are being honest because I'm tempted to do that all the time. I'm tempted to trade God's plan for me, which is to self-sacrificingly dissolve my life into the great plan of God's love and to allow His love to work through me to reach out to other people in a way that changes their lives. It is a true demonstration of what God does. My question for you this morning is, what is your lentil stew? I know what mine is. What is yours? What do you find that lentil stew to be in the moment that God calls us to love without condition? Well, the story goes on in Genesis 25, and Esau reacts in this way. I love what he says. He says, look, I'm about to die. Now, is that being dramatic a little bit? Is he kind of being a diva here? A little bit, right? He says, I'm about to die. What good is the birthright to me? Can you believe what he's saying? He knows what that birthright means, and he knows what this is getting ready to cost. But he says, oh, what good is that birthright to me? Jacob says, swear to me first. Back then in that culture, different than the way it is in our culture today, when you said something, what happened? That came true. People said what they meant and meant what they said. And when you swore an oath, it's like you were legally bound. Right? Jacob says, swear to me first. 
He swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. He made a choice, Esau did, to sell that birthright. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew, the scripture says. He ate and drank and then got up and left. The Bible says Esau despised his birthright. Now, when you think about the word despise, what does that mean to you? In our culture, despise is kind of like an emotion. Like, I despise, you know, barbecue pork, or I despise, you know, going to the movies too late at night, or I despise when somebody cuts me off in traffic, right? But this Bible word despise means something a little bit more. It means that you have a casual disregard for something and that you've even gone so far as to hate that thing. But ultimately, the source of the hate is that it's worthless to you. So the Bible says that Esau looked at his double portion of Isaac's estate and despised it. He looked at it and considered it to be worthless to him. And that's why it was so easy for him to trade this for a lousy little bowl of lentil stew. Now, yesterday I had some of our small group leaders over to the house and I experimented on them. I baked a casserole that had eggs and sausage and breading in it and oregano and two different kinds of cheese. Are you getting hungry yet? So anyway, I experimented on them and made this casserole for them and I gave it to them. Imagine if I showed up today with the leftovers of that casserole and put it out on the table and when Tony came up to me, when he, right when he got into the building, I said, Tony, I tell you what, I'll let you have some of my casserole this morning if you'll give me all of your retirement and investment planning. And imagine if Tony said, okay. <laughs> That's what we're dealing with here. Can you imagine the impact on his life if I took everything that he was planning for in the future for a piece of breakfast casserole? That's what we're talking about here, a casual disregard for the life to come. You know, it reminds me of, um, of dogs with really long bridged noses who are trained to sit still when you put a snack on it. Have you ever seen a, a master do this with a dog, someone, a dog owner, put the snacks up on the bridge of the nose like that, and the dog just sits there patiently and waits for that command? And right when the moment strikes, when that dog in great anticipation is waiting for the master's voice to say, go, then the dog snaps up that biscuit or that hot dog and it's such a joy and such a pleasure. But for the dog, the dog has been trained based on its instincts to want to please its master and the fact that the relationship with the master is more important than the payoff or the snack. The relationship with the master supersedes the immediate impulsive payoff of the snack and so that master and his love is more important to the dog. The dog puts off the snack for a moment. Imagine if we did the same with our master. Imagine if we waited in the moment of temptation and heard the voice of the master say, wait, it is my right to avenge. I will repay. Imagine in that moment if we did that, what power might flow through us. Maybe the dogs can teach us a lesson. Jacob and Esau, tuggling, struggling, fighting with each other, trying to use each other's stuff. The Bible goes on and describes this story further on there in Genesis, the later chapters. 
talks about this idea of Jacob approaching his father, Isaac, who had lost his vision in old age. And Jacob comes up um, at the prompting of his mother, Rebekah, who had given him a heads up and said Esau was sent out in the field to hunt some game to bring back to his father so that his father could give him the blessing of the firstborn. So my son Jacob, says Rebekah, why don't you go in and take it instead? And she helps him. She puts animal skins on his forearms and dresses him up in the firstborn's clothes, Esau's clothes. Jacob goes in and talks to his father, Isaac, and basically tells him, here I am, I am Esau. And you read in the scripture that through Isaac, the blessing that was meant for Esau is transferred instead to Jacob. The blessing and the rights of the firstborn. Jacob goes and takes that birthright that he took from his brother Esau for a bowl of soup. And he finalizes it and confirms it by deceiving his father Isaac. Deceit ran long and hard in their family. In fact, if you read a couple of chapters back, you see that Isaac, when he came into a, a certain town, a certain region, he had this beautiful wife, Rebecca, with him. And he lied to all the officials and told the officials that this woman who was with him was his sister and not his wife. Because he thought that if Isaac thought that if he told people that Rebekah was his wife, the people would kill him and take his wife because she was that beautiful. Deception ran in their family. The kids would have seen that. And they would have learned from the parents, the kids would have, that taking a deceptive motive and putting it into action was better than God's plan somehow. Where God had said to Isaac's father Abraham, you trusted me and it was credited to you as righteousness. Now you go and leave your hometown, go to this place that you've never been to before and follow me there and I will make your descendants as many as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. I will bless the whole world through you. Isaac knew about this promise of God. He knew what the plan of God was. But instead of following it, he decided to do it his own way. Why would he be surprised that his kids would do the same thing? Change the plan. Go into a plan that was more about them than it was about God. You see the pattern? See how it goes? But then the Bible says very clearly to us is as this works out, Jacob ends up being who we call Israel. And Israel was the forefather of one named Jesus who was promised to come through Abraham. So even with the way humans act and talk, even with the way we deceive and hide, God makes His plan come true, doesn't He? That is such good news for you and me. Even in the moment of temptation, we know that it's not up to us to overcome that temptation to deceive and to do things our own way. We know that God has already done it for us. Here's a scripture I want to share with you. This is from Colossians. This is chapter 1, starting in verse 19. The Bible says, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, Jesus, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, things that were in the past, things that we're struggling with right now, and things that haven't even happened yet. 
God has reconciled through Jesus all things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, look at this. When we're tempted to act like the person who was alienated from God, the old person, God calls us to remember that we're not that old person alienated from God anymore. That's why Paul is writing this to the Colossians. He says, once you were alienated from God, separated from Him, and were enemies in your minds as evidenced by the way you behaved. Right? But now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. We find ourselves rolling in the dirt and in the mud of sin with an adversary who God never intends for us to struggle and fight with. But sometimes because we are human, we find ourselves in these situations. The good news is God has overcome it through Jesus. I want you to look at the spirit with which King David addresses this issue. This is Psalm 51. David cries this out to God. And I'd ask you, if you will, if you're willing, just read this with me. Ready? Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And then further on, he says this, read with me. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Remember the biblical version of despise? God looks at a broken and contrite heart, a heart that has said, you know what? There's a part of this that's my responsibility. There's a part of this that I need to own up to. There's a part of this conflict that I might have contributed to, maybe if I don't even know that I contributed to it. I need to let God have that and make that an act of worship. Sometimes we think worship is just about singing songs, showing up to church. But worship is more. Worship is about walking with Jesus. And when we encounter the temptation to add to a conflict or to remember a conflict we've been in and think, you know what? It wasn't my fault. I didn't have anything to do with that. When we're tempted to have that mindset, God would cause us to step back away from it and look at it with His eyes and ask the question, what part did I play? And God, would you heal that in me? And when that happens, it paves the way for reconciliation. And until that happens, reconciliation has no chance. But when it happens, the glory of God rises up in you. The humbling of your spirit gives you an opportunity to participate in the healing, perfect work of God in you. Yes, Little old you and little old me. That is where the perfection of God's work takes place. Look at one more scripture with me. This is a description of Jesus and how he gets into that with us. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, 
who being, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he didn't want to take the perspective of God and think, I am not wrong. He didn't want to take the perspective of God and say, the other person is wrong and I'm right. Only God can do that. Amen? Only God can do that. But that's the good news. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant on, being made in human likeness, found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. It's like the, the scripture gives this image, like his heart is emptied, like he took his heart out and upended it and poured it out. He emptied himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We love that he went there. Because for you and me, the onus and the burden of healing broken relationships does not rely on our strength and our desires and our wants. But it is the plan of God. It is the glory of God. It is the perfection of God to see that happen through you and me in the lives of not only ourselves but others. I love that so much. We have the opportunity to empty ourselves of the desire to be right. We have the opportunity to step away from conflict and see it with God's eyes. And instead of trying to polish it or make it pretty or hide it, we realize this truth. And if you write nothing down for the rest of the message, I want you to write this down. Are you ready? Here we go. You can't polish poo. Let me say it again just in case you didn't hear it. You can't polish poo. If it's dirty, it's dirty. Let it be dirty and give it to God. God will clean it where you cannot. And in fact, he promises to do this through Jesus. That is the power of repentance. Repentance says my heart is taken out and upended and poured out and everything comes out and it is filled again with what? with the love of God, with His glory, and with His power. When we own our part in a conflict, when we look at what we might have contributed, and even if we didn't contribute to the conflict, ask the question, God, did I contribute something to this? And then we confess it to Him and or to someone else who loves us, who we trust. When we get that opportunity, even if we don't know if we did something or not, something happens when we own our part of the conflict and confess it. We remember that God works in that humility. He works in an empty heart by filling it. This is the same thing that happened from the cross. And this is Jesus hanging up there. I want you to hear these words that he said, Father, forgive them. Say the rest with me. They know not what they do. Can you imagine if we approached our conflicts with that same mentality? Father, forgive us. We don't know what we're doing. And then Jesus comes back and says, that's okay. Because I know what you're doing. And I know what I'm doing. And I will do this work in you. The work of reconciliation. Of healing of gathering and pulling people together who've been brought apart 
by the sinful nature. You know, that's the point of this series, is it's not only to say, you know, here are three quick fixes to make your life be perfect. God never said the life of a Christ follower was going to be easy, but he did say that it was going to be abundant. Do you know what that means? That means that the part of himself that he pours into your heart and mine, it never runs dry. It never runs empty. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, when we up in our hearts and pour them out before him and open our minds to the idea that he wants repentance in us so that he can move us from one direction to another and so that he can give us a brand new abundant life, a real life, a life that is full and purposeful and meaningful. It gives us the opportunity to know him in a deeper and more fulfilling way. Would you agree with that? Even if you don't this morning, that's okay. The grace of God covers us. And for us, it's an opportunity to know him more. We're going to get ready to sing here in a couple of minutes before the kids come in. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to explore repentance. Something that seems like it might be a dirty word is actually a part of the good news of Jesus. The idea that when we empty ourselves out before you, that you come and fill us up, that you show us how to live. You show us how to be reconciled to those with whom we have had a fallout or conflict. God, there are some relationships that you know full well should never be a back-in fellowship again, daily contact. But you have designed us for reconciliation. So however that best takes place, God, Help us to explore it in the light of the good news of Jesus. For we follow him here with all the power of the Holy Spirit as he gives. It's in his name we pray and together we say, Amen and Amen.